Because now we come to the second census. Verse 1 of chapter 26. He's going to go through all the tribes again and count them all up. And basically what you find is that their numbers pretty much stay about the same. In 40 years, they have not grown any. Not really. Many of the tribes do grow a little bit by like 10,000 each. The tribes that don't grow are Reuben, the Simeonites, and Gad, and Ephraim. And the best guess is that a lot of these are the ones who participate in rebellions. We know that Reuben was part of the rebellion of Korah. Remember two families of Reuben and the family of Korah from Levites, the ones who rebelled against Aaron and said, we think we should be priests. So it's not surprising that Reuben's numbers went down because they were part of that judgment getting swallowed up. Gad also seemed to participate in some rebellions earlier. They're briefly mentioned. The Simeonites are briefly mentioned. But we're not exactly why Ephraim suffers in numbers here and Naphtalia. There are two that also decrease the numbers. All the others grow. The Simeonites are the ones who decrease the most. Now, as you look at all the tribes individually, you would get the sense that, like, wow, the vast majority of them have grown in numbers. So that's a good thing, right? Well, yes. But in 40 years, that's all they've grown. And one of the major promises of God is to make them a fruitful and abundant nation, especially after the prophecies of Balaam then you realize that's really not enough growth, which shows that overall they've really been disobedient. And because we've read all of numbers, we were like, yeah, they have. But because the numbers of those tribes, Naphtali, Ephraim, Gad, Reuben, and Simeon, have decreased so much that actually what ends up happening is at the beginning of numbers, there were 603,000 people. And now at the end, there's 601,000 people. So as an entire nation as a whole, they've actually decreased in size. And that's significant because the major blessing of God is to be fruitful and multiply. From the garden to Abraham to now these oracles. And what it shows you is the last 40 years, they have not been obedient as a whole, as a nation. And their numbers have gone down rather than grow. And that's sad. And that shows you the real point of the book of Numbers. That sin and rebellion against God has taken a toll on their blessings overall. The first census was to count how many people there are so they could go to war. But they didn't end, going to, they didn't end up going to war because they refused to enter the promised land. Now this second census, he also says count them because they're going to go to war because they're about ready to go to war for real this time. But also this census as a second reason for why they are to be counted because of tribal inheritance. Because once they go to war, God's also going to divvy out the land to all the 12 tribes, well, the 11 tribes. And so he now says count them not only for going to war, but also for knowing how many people are going to dwell in each tribal territory of the land. Because remember, the major focus of numbers is the land, the land, the land, the land. And so this second census is to figure out what the people in the land are. And then he counts all the priests as well. Then, what do we get? We just had sin and rebellion, so what now comes? Laws. More laws. With every sin, there's just more laws. 
For you who don't like laws, don't worry, we only have one more book. And then we're done with the laws. Now, chapter 27, God begins to talk about special inheritance laws. It's interesting that because we just got done counting the people to figure out how many there are for the inheritance of the land, and now an inheritance issue comes up. And so chapter 21, 27, verse 1, it says, Then the daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hepher, the son of Gilead, the son of Machar, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, came forward. And now these are the names of his daughters. Mahalah, Noah, Haglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and Eleazar the priests and the leaders of the whole assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting and said, Our father died in the wilderness, although he was not a part of the company of those who gathered themselves against Yahweh and the company of Korah. But he died of his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be lost from among the family because he had no son? Give us a possession among the relatives of our father. So basically, this guy has a bunch of daughters. I've even thought about just nicknaming myself Zelophod. <laughs> he has a bunch of daughters, and the law says that the land is to go to the sons. Now, that's not sexist, because remember, we've talked about this before. That basically, when a daughter gets married, her future husband is inheriting land from his father. And now that her dad, the father-in-law, is losing her as a helper in the family, he pays a little bit of his inheritance to the father to say, thank you for letting me marry your daughter. Sorry that I'm taking extra hands from you and somebody from your home. Um, although you're thankful because now you don't have to buy a bunch of clothes for her anymore. And, um, and I'm also giving you a little bit of my inheritance to help you pay for people. And this is to protect me from abusing your daughter in a one-night stand because it's going to cost me a lot. Okay, That's the gist of it all. So then she goes to the son, and she inherits her land through her marriage to her husband through his tribe. So it's not sexist in that women don't get land. It's that they just get land in a different way. The sons who stay in the tribe, because they're not being taken to another family, they're bringing their future wives into their family. They're the ones that get the land from their fathers. So basically, these women come up and say, our dad died and he had no sons. Which means his inheritance is going to be completely lost. And they're from the tribe of Manasseh too. Now, they made it very clear. Our dad died of natural causes for his own sins, meaning that everybody dies because of their own sins, not because he was a sinner who did horrible things. But in the Genesis chapter 5 kind of sense, everybody dies. And then he didn't rebel at Korah, and he didn't rebel anywhere else, so he was not like we get to lose land because of judgment from God. Everything's kosher, everything's good, he just died. We have no land. Now this is interesting. I mean, this, first of all, in every single culture in the ancient world, they would just be out of luck. The, the, the name of the father would be lost, and the land would be lost, and just go to the other, his other brothers and stuff and be gone. And they would just get land through their husband. And you say, well, what's the big deal? They're still getting land. Yeah, but you have to understand this is something that we, we don't really relate to as Americans. Even I, I mean, I get this intellectually and historically, biblically, but it's not a part of our um, mental DNA, so to speak. It's not just land, it's your name. 
In the ancient world, your name, your line is so important. And, and it's important to God. And we know that because genealogies just show up everywhere in the Bible. And specifically, genealogies are the basis of the four Gospels when we get to Jesus. I mean, they all begin with genealogies. Okay? And you're like, well, there, there's only one in Matthew and Luke. No, there's Mark and John, too. Mark just says, Jesus, the Son of God. His genealogy is really short because that's how Mark does everything. <laughs> Mark is like your ADD child that you thought, like, is he going to ever be able to focus long enough to do anything? And you're like, holy crap, he became a disciple and wrote a gospel. <laughs> and John has one, too. But, and John is it's kind of the same thing. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's his genealogy. So they all have genealogies. Two are just really short and sweet. That's so important because that's your name. In the ancient world, they don't have a concept of really going to heaven or hell. For them, they just go into this, the grave, and they sleep or whatever. They don't know. They just call it Sheol, and they go there, and they know. They got this sense that life goes on, and they got this sense that it's not horrible or bad, but it's also depressing and kind of dark and gloomy. You just wander around with no direction. Now, is that what really happens? We don't know, but that's their perspective. I'm not here to say what really happens because we're never told, but we don't know what their perspective is. So how do you live forever through your biology? They don't understand DNA yet, but they do understand that this kid looks and acts like me, so there's some kind of connection there, and he's going to continue my name, and that's how I live forever. And that's the way they think. And descendants and ancestry is huge. So they're saying our father's name our father's being, his memory is going to be lost, so to speak. And he's, no land is going to be connected. This, this can't be right. This is a question that they never faced because no other culture thinks this way, cares about this, and they've never had land as Israelites to even think about this. Now, this is what's so interesting. Moses is stumped. He doesn't know what to do. There's no law about this. He knows what everybody else in the world has done, but he also knows that this nation is completely different and God likes bucking traditions of the culture. So what does Moses do? He goes to God. He goes to God. And God firmly establishes that if there are no sons, then the daughters will inherit the name and the land. Now that's huge because this is like big-time women's rights way before anybody ever thought about it. And this is what blows me away. Like, I'm all for the feminist movement in its core basic understanding, not the uber-going-extreme sense. I do believe that there was a need for a feminist movement in America. And, and, and I know my gender was a big part of why they needed that. I'm not okay with the extremes and that let's turn around and assassinate the other gender now because it's our turn now. But you have to realize, like, I, what I don't understand is why they go to Christianity and the Bible and attack it like it's the culprit and the reason why everything's wrong in America with sexism. If you go to the Bible, you see women. I mean, a lot of this, they just don't understand the culture. And hopefully through Leviticus and Exodus, I try to explain a lot of that culture. And this really actually is protecting women. Judaism is the only culture and religion in all the ancient world that ever actually gave women rights actually allowed them to be leaders. And that's the other thing I hate, when the church has gone on board with a woman shall not be a leader. 
It doesn't say that. Deborah was a prophetess. Miriam was a prophetess. Eve was the queen of all creation. The Bible gives more rights to the women than any other religion. You go to every single religion out there and every other culture, and they don't give women rights innately at all. There's nothing there. And, and there's a book called Paul Among His People. I forget her name. It's a hard read, morally, because she's basically an uber-feminist who called Paul a male chauvinist pig and a sexist woman defeater and anti-homosexual and homophobic and all this kind of stuff. And she hated Paul and hated the Bible because it's all anti-women, anti-homosexual, and that kind of stuff. And then she went off and got like a PhD in Roman history. And she became a believer and fell in love with Paul. <laughs> because once she understood the Roman culture, then everything Paul was making, saying also made sense to her. And she realized that Paul was an advocate of all this stuff. And the reason he was so anti-homosexual is because it was a different kind of homosexuality. Now, it's a difficult read in the sense that she gets really graphic about what the Roman Empire did. And that's a little hard. But her points and conclusions about Therefore, this is why Paul said this, are powerful. Coming from a woman who was like really anti-God and Paul and Bible and uber feminist and studying the culture is what converted. See, God can use anything. It wasn't even the Bible converter. It was the culture of the Roman Empire. And she writes this book called Paul Among the People and basically says, if you really, really, truly understand the culture that these guys are speaking in, you realize that they, everything that I, as a feminist, was fighting for, God actually gave us. That's huge. That an uber-feminist who's made it her life agenda to rally against God in the Bible, her ultimate conclusion is the Bible actually gives us everything that I was fighting for. That's way powerful than me as a white male saying women have rights in the Bible. And so you need to understand this is revolutionary, that God is saying, I want you to have a land inheritance, and I want you to have a name, and you as a woman have every right to carry the name of your father on. And he's going to devote two chapters to this. It's going to be here, and it's going to show up again at the very end of the book. And then it's going to show up again in Joshua, and they come and they say, remember, God said we could have this land. And Joshua says, yeah, I know. Go, take it. It's yours. Three chapters, three incidents are dedicated to the fact that you have the right to carry your father's name on. That is so anti-cultural. That is big-time anti-cultural. And that says something about who God's character is. But what is God, his character is? Any questions? Chapter 8, 29, 30. I'm going to go through them really quick because they're just basically repetitions of Leviticus and stuff. So in chapter 28, verse 1, we get to the festivals and making vows. And so basically he talks about the festivals first. The sacrifices and the festivals were covered in Leviticus chapter 1 through 6 and then verse in chapter 23. So the sacrifices were all in the first six chapters of Leviticus and the festivals that he talks about were in chapter 23. And the festivals are the Passover, the unleavened bread, um, the Feast of Weeks, first fruits, um, trumpets, and booths, and the Day of Atonement. So all those that I went in great detail in the book of Leviticus. So basically what he says is, now what he's focusing is on is 
how many animals should you be sacrificing at these festivals and in these sacrifices? So what is the minimum number required in a year? Now, he's not talking about individual sacrifices, although the individual person, he's talking about the priests that are making sacrifices on a daily basis for the entire nation and at the festivals. And God is going to go through all these sacrifices and through all these festivals and say that this is the minimum number of how many animals. Now, why is that important? Why is that here? Because remember, they're just out in the wilderness. And the wilderness, there's not, all they have is the animals that are with them in a very barren place. And so basically God is saying like, okay, you just sacrifice what you can, basically. He never put any kind of requirement on it. But now he is. And the reason he is is because they're about ready to enter the land, flowing with milk and honey, where there's going to be abundance of crops, abundance of grass, and abundance of plants, and the animals are going to be able to be fruitful and multiply, just like the humans. The Bible focuses a lot on animals and their connection to humans, and that animals are reaped, are animals reap the blessings and the judgments of God along with the humans. It's a very interesting thing throughout the Bible that God actually connects the blessing of creation and nature and the cursing of creation nature to us. And we saw that when Adam and Eve sinned, all of nature's curse as a result. And when Israel obeys, all of nature is blessed with Israel as well. And in some ways, it's like, if our original command was to rule and subdue and take care of creation, then we shouldn't be stopping now as modern day Christians in America. We should be the advocates for taking care of the environment. We should be the advocates for stopping global climate change. We should be protecting the animals. And I know there's a lot of crazy people out there that are doing it in real ways, but if we were out there doing it, we could teach them how to do it right. And the reality is you are called to take care of creation, and God directly connects the life of an animal in creation to your obedience or lack of obedience. And so now they're going to the land, and if they're obedient, they'll be blessed, but the land will also be blessed, and the animals will also be blessed. And so God now says this is the minimal requirement of all these animals, because as you increase in your blessings, your sacrifices will increase. Because one animal sacrifice might cost you a lot at first, but now when you're in a land and you have all this abundant, one animal won't probably cost you a lot. And sacrifice without sacrifice is not a sacrifice. And this is why Solomon is going to offer 1,000 animals in one sacrifice, because he's a king. And a true sacrifice for him is a lot of animals. And so God lays out these minimal requirements of what a true sacrifice is now in an abundant land. And that's the point. I'm bringing you to a land where you're going to be blessed, and therefore a sacrifice is now going to be more costly because the abundance of your blessings are going to become greater. And this is one of the reasons why 10% is a good starting point for tithing. Because no matter how much your income increases, the 10% increases with it. But there's also a point where you can get so wealthy that 10% is not a sacrifice anymore. And so it's a good starting place, but it's not the ultimate criteria for what a sacrifice is. And so that's what God goes through in these. He just basically goes through all these things again and lives out um, this thing. Then in chapter 30, he talks about vows. And remember, vows are all important. They keep showing up over and over and over again in the Bible. Why? Because your vow to God is really important. And if you can't keep your vow in little things in life, then you're not going to keep your vow in the big thing with Yahweh. So he talks about vows and basically lists out two things. He goes through the vows again, and once again, he neither forbids nor encourages vows. 
Some vows are very important, like your marriage covenant and your covenant with God. Those are absolutely necessary. But as far as like, I swear I will be there or I swear I'll do this, he doesn't discourage it, but he doesn't encourage it. But he also kind of warns that once you make a vow, you're locked in under the will of God. So be very carefully about what vows you make and think through them very carefully because God is going to hold you to it. So that's basically God's criterion vows. Think really hard, really long. If you're not good at that stuff, find a friend who can do it with you or just don't do it all before you make your vow. Because when we get to the book of Judges, we're going to find a lot of people who make vows very rashly and very quickly, and they pay serious consequences for it. And so that's what God is warning against. But he does go on and say that even though he gives women incredible rights, the women are still under the headship of the father and the husband. And so he says, the woman, if she makes a vow, and the father of the husband says, you know, I don't agree with that vow, he has the right to get rid of the vow without paying any consequence from God or the community or any of that kind of stuff. Now, I know that that can kind of sound sexist, but the main thing I think you should take away from that is God doesn't intend for you to be an individual. God intends for you to be a community. And I think the main thing to take from here is not that women don't have to make the right to make vows on their own outside of a man. That's not the point. Because it doesn't say the father and the husband are to come in and get rid of her vow. It just says if they realize in their wisdom or in their headship that it doesn't really fit with the whole family and it will might me hurt or whatever, they can't keep it, they have the right to take to get rid of it. It doesn't mean that the father or the husband will always undo her vow. It just means they have the right to do it. What it means is this, is that a family is meant to operate together. It is meant to operate together. Now, when we get to Peter, remember, Peter will say, women, follow your husbands, respect them. But it also says, husbands, live in all understanding of your wives and die for them like Christ did for the church. What it means is, Yes, women are to respect their husbands and follow that leading. And I don't even think that leading means, I just think the leading means more of making sure that it all gets done, not that this is what we're going to do. Because if a man is truly living in all understanding of his wife, then that means he's listening to her. And whenever you truly listen to somebody, they change you. If they don't change you, then you're not really listening and you're not really understanding. So this is the beauty of Peter that's not sexist. Peter is saying, husbands, you are demanded by God to listen to your wife. And women want to be listened more than men want to be listened to in a loving kind of a cherishing encouragement sense. If you listen to your wife, over time she will change you and she will influence you and you'll become one flesh with her and you'll become more like her. And then when you make decisions, you are taking her into consideration, all her strengths and all that kind of stuff because she's been changing you. I think anybody who's really been married long enough knows that your spouse does eventually change you for better and for worse, but in a perfect world for better over time. But here's the other thing. He also says you'll love your spouse like Christ loved the church, meaning you die first. Now, it doesn't mean physical death necessarily, although that's part of it, because in the context of John, 1 John, what God is really talking about is picking up your cross and following him, meaning that your rights, your rights die first. What you want to do dies first. What you think your rights are dies first, which means 
that your husband's called to be a leader who's willing to sacrifice his rights and his want to for the sake of his wife, which means it's totally contrary to women were doing this. So he's being changed by her, influenced by her, one flesh with her, and he's called to sacrifice his selfish desires for the sake of hers, all under the headship of God and prayer and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. How can that be sexist? Now, I know that's the Second Testament, but God doesn't change, which means when you read this vow thing, you have every right to say that's probably what God is, has intention here because that's what his intention there is, and he doesn't change. And so this isn't a man just coming in and having the right to trump a woman. This is a man saying, we're a unit. We're a family. And if you do something that doesn't fit in with the family, then I have the right as the head. Now, the other thing the Bible goes on to is says, you also bear all the responsibility for that. Because Eve sinned first, but Adam gets blamed all throughout the Bible by God. And so that's why I tell people, you really want headship? It also means that you reap the judgment for everything as well. And people are like, oh, I don't really want that. Okay, And so that's the context here is vows are serious. And I think the important thing that you should take from this is that when you make vows, when you say, I will, this should be done in a community. You need to put thought into it. And you need to take in consideration your family or your company or your church or your neighborhood, whatever context you're making that vow in, that's just not something you do on your own. All people need to be considered and taken into consideration when you make a vow. Because God values community over individuality, unlike America. And that's what God, this, this is the point that God is making. This is community, community. Even though some tribes grow and other ones died out, God doesn't focus on his numbers. He focuses on the number of the community. And that's what God has called us to, community. So take your vows seriously. Does this make sense? Any questions? Comments?